0: W Media. Spy Talk, a podcast at
1: the
2: intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Maserve. Welcome to Spy Talk. I'm Gene Maserve. Jeff Stein is taking a well-deserved week off. Three former generals have created a hubbub with their Washington Post op-ed expressing their fear that there could be a coup after the next election because the big lie has eroded faith in our electoral system.
1: And if you have a reasonable young man or woman who now believes that we have doubt in who the real elected president of the United States is, who has doubt that we have made an accurate call, who believes there may be fraud in the electoral outcome, that doubt will be a significant problem for the country, for our federal police forces, for all of our state and local police forces, and by extrapolation, the U.S. military.
2: I'll be talking more with retired General Paul Eaton later in the podcast about the potential for a partisan breakdown in the U.S. military. But first, Ukraine. Ukraine's Ministry of Defense estimates there are 120,000 Russian troops massed on its border. Although Russia says it has returned 10,000 of them to their permanent bases and diplomatic talks have been scheduled for early January, fears of a Russian invasion in the new year are unabated. In a recent interview with CBS News, Vice President Kamala Harris said, if Russian troops do enter Ukraine, there will be severe consequences.
3: We are very clear that, uh, that Russia should not invade the sovereignty of Ukraine, that we must stand up and we are standing up for its territorial integrity. We are working with our allies in that regard and we've been very clear that we are prepared to issue sanctions like you've not seen before. Does that mean sanctioning Vladimir Putin directly? I am not gonna talk about specific sanctions, but we are making that clear to him and, and we are in direct conversations.
2: Russian President Vladimir Putin denies he's planning to invade, but is insisting on a pledge from NATO that it will not expand to the east and will not allow Ukraine to join. You must give us the guarantees. It is up to you. And you must do this immediately, right now. Jonathan Broder, a SpyTalk contributing editor, has been covering wars and writing about foreign policy for four decades. In a recent Spy Talk piece, he called the Ukraine situation the most dangerous confrontation between the United States and Russia since the collapse of the Soviet Union 30 years ago. Jeff Stein caught up with Broder last week to discuss the deepening crisis.
0: Jonathan Broder, welcome to Spy Talk. Great to have you back again. You wrote a fascinating piece for us about the uh, U.S. Ukraine Russia situation. Let's get right to it. What does Putin want? And how is he going to get it?
3: Putin wants um, the NATO and the United States to back off uh, in its movement of NATO to the east. Um, And what he's done is he's massed some 100,000 troops on the border of Ukraine, uh, threatening an invasion, clearly. Um, And this, I believe, is uh, an effort to get the United States and NATO to consider his demands. Um, And his demands are that that NATO and uh, the United States have to uh, provide him with guarantees that Ukraine will never join uh, NATO, and that the countries that are already in NATO that are in Eastern Europe and former Soviet republics um, will not have missiles based on them aimed at Russia. Uh, And he would also like to revive the intermediate um, uh, range uh, nuclear forces treaty, the INF treaty, which Trump uh, withdrew from um, several years ago.
0: But as you noted in your piece, John, there's no appetite in NATO to include Ukraine uh, as a NATO member. So what's going on?
3: Well, I think that uh, uh, Putin doesn't really trust that. Um, There has been a standing invitation for Ukraine and the former Soviet Republic of Georgia to join NATO since 2008. Um, And that invitation uh, was reiterated by uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO um, just last week. Um, So as far as Putin is concerned, that offer is still on the table and uh, somewhere down the line, it's possible that Ukraine could meet NATO's uh, conditions and join the Defense Alliance. So he wants to nip that in the bud right now.
0: But uh, he's a nasty guy. He's been uh, meddling in European affairs and our affairs for some time now. Is this a ploy on his part? Uh, and does he have any back off room?
3: When you say a ploy, you mean the ma- the mounting of the troops?
0: Yeah, by just uh, threatening, you know, by massive mobilization of not just troops, but artillery pieces and so on, tanks and so on. Is this uh, uh, likely to have a positive effect in the West? It seems to be getting just exactly the opposite response.
3: Well, we don't know yet. I don't think it's a ploy. I don't think it's a ploy at all. I think that um, he considers, Putin considers um, uh, the prospect of Ukraine joining NATO a bridge too far. Um, you have to remember that, uh, let's do, uh, sort of recall a bit of history here. Um, in 1990, uh, just after the Berlin Wall fell, there were negotiations between the United States and Russia, um, over the reunification of Germany. And in those negotiations, one of, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's concerns was um, if Germany is reunited, it will join NATO, and NATO will then hence move farther east uh, toward Russia. And Russia has a very, very bad memory of, uh, of invasions uh, into Russia from the West. Um, in sure. 1812, Napoleon reached the gates of Moscow, before the Soviet, uh, the Russian winter defeated him uh, in 1854, uh, Britain, France, uh, Sardinia and the Ottoman Empire uh, uh, invaded Russia from the west uh, uh, in the Crimean War and Russia lost that war. Mm -hmm. Um, And then of course in 1941, Hitler's armies uh, came within 10 miles of of, uh, Moscow. Uh, before the winter also defeated them and a very Mm -hmm. stiff Russian resistance. And in the process, in World War II, which is the most recent memory, um, 27 million Russians died, both soldiers and civilians. I want to repeat that number. 27 million people died. Mm -hmm. And the Russians remembered that. They remembered that very, very, very carefully, uh, very, very closely. Um, And... uh, OK, Putin is, yes, he's a dictator. But in this case, I believe that he is concerned, just as many Russians before him have been concerned, both both communists and czars, uh, about an invasion from the West. Now, every time a country joins NATO, we base missiles there. We base troops there. And if you look at the, uh, uh, the promises that were made in 1990, uh, James Baker, uh, not only James Baker, but the leaders of uh, of Britain and West Germany at the time, they all promised Gorbachev in writing. A lot of people say it wasn't in writing. It was in writing. Uh, the, we have the documents at, at the National Security Archive to to prove it that they wrote in they they promised him that baker used the words not one inch that the that the that nato would not move one inch eastward
0: Mm -hmm.
3: and those promises have all been broken because uh that was in 1990 uh uh clinton came into power uh and with the collapse of the soviet union in 1991 we were the hyperpower. There was no other power to, to challenge us. So we did what we wanted, and we moved NATO to the east.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's... And Russia
3: could do nothing about it.
0: So the DNA is deeply embedded in the Russian psyche of a fear of invasion from the West. Now, Absolutely. also during the Clinton administration 1994, under the so-called Budapest Accords, uh, the uh, U.S. and the West uh, said it would... Uh, 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 it would protect uh, Ukraine's sovereignty, and some commentators today have been writing to me and saying, "Well, we have a de facto uh, pledge to Ukraine to defend them." So, um, uh, and, and and these same commentators seem to be saying, because of that, we should uh, make a, a pledge to militarily defend Ukraine. What do you think about that?
3: That is insanity. I mean, if that if we do that, I would think that there's going to be war. I mean, I think that the 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 massive buildup of Russian troops and Russian armor uh, on the border with Ukraine is not a bluff. Um, You know, uh, we've threatened sanctions. We Biden has said very clearly that he will not send U.S. troops. So that's a signal right there. Mm -hmm. Um, He has said that we will send military equipment. But. Uh, so a Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine would be costly for uh, for Russia. However, uh, you have to weigh. I mean, I think what Putin is weighing in his mind is um, Russian casualties versus NATO missiles in Ukraine pointed right at Russia. And you have to remember also that. If you look at a map, Ukraine sort of protrudes into the belly of Russia in the south. In the north, you have three Baltic states: Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, which were former Soviet republics. Okay. They are also members now of NATO. So mm-hmm. with, NATO has really moved into uh into Russian territory um, or former Soviet territory. Mm-hmm. Now uh, you put missiles in both of those countries and Russia is hemmed in from the north and the south. I'd like to make one other point that I think is quite cogent here. Okay. Um, the uh, One of the things that one hears from Hawks on this issue is that Putin does not deserve to have a sphere of influence, um, a, a sort of a buffer around uh, the western side of Russia uh, to protect him from... Uh, uh, advances by the west uh toward russia he doesn't deserve a uh a sphere of influence let's remember that um if the united states is bordered by uh canada and mexico if either of those two countries were to form a military alliance And that's what NATO is. It's a defense alliance. If either of those two countries were to form a military alliance with either Russia or China, do you think the United States would accept that? Look what happened in 1962 when the Russians put missiles in Cuba. We nearly went to nuclear war, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Uh, look what happened uh, during, in the, during the Cold War. All the countries of South America and Central America, that there was a threat of them going communist. We supported savage dictatorships to prevent that from happening.
0: Mm-hmm. But another issue, uh, another critique uh, that has been popping up online since we published your piece is that backing off, accepting Putin's uh, arguments – would be like 1938 all over again with Neville Chamberlain uh, appeasing Hitler and and backing off. What do you say to that?
3: I don't think that uh, Vladimir Putin is Adolf Hitler. I really don't think so. I think that he wants to, you know, the, the accusation is Putin wants to reconstruct the Soviet Union. I don't think that's true. I think Putin simply wants to, um, uh, make sure that he has friendly governments to the west of Moscow, in between Moscow and NATO. Okay, so... That doesn't seem to me such an unreasonable expectation. Now, you know, we may disagree with it, but I don't think that what he is doing is... Um, uh, is anything that any other Russian leader would, uh, wouldn't want to do, provided that they have the strength to do it. When we moved NATO to the east in the 90s and the uh, early 2000s, um, before Putin came into power, the president of Russia was Boris Yeltsin. And he was weak and he uh, his economy had collapsed and he was a drunk. He couldn't do anything about it, which is why we did it. Mm-hmm. Well, let's yeah, do
0: something about it. Let me get to uh, get you to clarify what your position is here. Are you're not saying are you that Russia is justified in overrunning at least the disputed uh, territories and stealing them from Ukraine in a well, military invasion?
3: Is that what you're saying? What I'm saying is that what he's doing is understandable. That's all. That I mean, I am surprised that people don't understand that he would react this way. Of course he would. Just as we would and as we did in 1962, and if Canada or uh, Mexico decided to form a military alliance with China or Russia, we would not tolerate that.
0: All right. So does that you, make
3: us so? Does that make us, you know, the equivalent of Hitler?
0: So are we Khrushchev in the situation in 1962 that we should back off uh, Ukraine because uh, Russia is paranoid about our uh, uh, or, or rightfully fearful of Western advances in Ukraine?
3: Look, there is there is an agreement right now, the Minsk uh, agreements one and two. And what they call for is basically splitting the baby, giving the Eastern Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine um, autonomy. Now, uh, Putin has turn that down because he doesn't trust uh, the West to make the other part, the Western part of uh, Ukraine neutral. Because let's say the the Donbass and the other two uh, Southern and Eastern uh, 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 provinces of Ukraine become autonomous and they are pro-Russian. That still leaves Western Ukraine, which still protrudes pretty far eastern into uh, the underbelly of Russia, uh, open to join NATO, and missiles could come in there, too. He wants Ukraine to be neutral, all of it, east and west.
0: Hmm.
1: And that
3: doesn't strike me as an unreasonable demand.
0: So if he seizes the eastern half of Ukraine or eastern third of Ukraine, um one can foresee the west and the us immediately inviting the, the remainder of ukraine ukraine proper into nato um but maybe in- not
3: immediately maybe not immediately because uh, to join nato you still have to jump through certain hoops and mm-hmm. Corruption or lack of corruption would be one of them. And Western Ukraine, the Kiev government, has a corruption problem. So they would have to resolve that first. Mm -hmm. But yes, eventually, I could see Western Ukraine becoming part of NATO.
0: Hmm. Now, we ran another piece uh, yesterday, as you know, uh, in which Dmitry Alperovitz uh, made a very strong case that, in fact, Putin will invade in late January, early February, um, uh, and that the West can do nothing about it militarily. I don't think that there's any debate over that. We can make it more painful to them with uh, Stinger missiles, say, which can uh, take their uh, armed choppers out of the sky, anti-tank weapons. We can make it, we can bloody their nose, but there's there's really no question that they can overrun Ukraine maybe even the whole of Ukraine, if they were to go that far, without us being able to do anything about it uh, militarily. So what do you think is the U.S. strategy now for um, responding to that kind of invasion?
3: One word, sanctions. That's our weapon of choice now. I mean, it seems that our foreign policy has devolved into uh, a binary choice between Military action or sanctions. And after 20 years of war uh, in uh, Afghanistan and uh, a dozen or more years of war in Iraq, uh, the United States is war weary. Uh, the administration is war weary. We're not going to go to war again. Mm.
0: This. But, you know, I'm glad you brought up Iraq and uh, uh, Afghanistan because. Uh, you, you can see the U.S. is also sort of crouched in a corner right now because of the calamity in Afghanistan, in particular, and uh, the, uh, the the threat of China, which is uh, being magnified here into our domestic politics and so on. And so you can see us slipping into a very uh, a dark place where uh, where we're looking into an abyss of nuclear threats and nuclear war. Can you see that happening?
3: Look, I can see that um, the United States uh, in the wake of Afghanistan, its credibility has suffered. Um, And uh, not only Russia and China, but even our European allies uh, have lost a certain degree of faith in our credibility. Um, and what's happening is that they are all, both rivals and allies, are going their own way. They're going to they're do what they're going to do to protect their own interests, hopefully with us if they're allies, but without us if they have to. And the perfect example, and this may never happen, but I've, uh, and, that, and that's the European talk of the creation of a European army. Now, this is a old, European
0: independent army,
3: an army, uh, a European army that is independent of the United States. And the reason why and the the the, the country and the person who is pushing this the hardest is uh, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France. Um, and the reason why is that he foresees situations, particularly in the Sahel, uh and in the Middle East, where um, there are. Big French and European interests where the United States doesn't have interests, um, where there could be a crisis, uh, a, a takeover by uh, uh, Al Qaeda in the Maghreb uh, or Islamic State, essentially, you know, jihadis taking over these weak governments in the Sahel and, and West Africa, where Europeans would have to be extracted. European interests would have to be protected. And the Americans are going to say, no, that's not our fight.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So
3: they need their own force to intervene if if required. Mm-hmm. And there's God. serious talk about this. And what's very interesting is that up until now, the United States has been against this idea because they fear that it would weaken NATO. Biden is in favor of it. And that's a big change.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, there's not going to be an independent European army to rush into Ukraine to defend it against the Russians.
3: No, absolutely not.
0: So in the meantime, we're going to be in the shadowy area of covert diplomacy between both sides, or clandestine, I should say, Uh, diplomacy. What do you think is the best outcome we can look forward to in the winter
3: Uh, a Russian invasion that costs Russia a lot, a lot of lives and a lot of treasure. But just remember one thing, what will happen if there is an invasion is that uh, gas supplies to Europe will be cut off. Uh, The Nord Stream 2 pipeline project will stop dead in its tracks. So one would think that a huge source of income from Europe to pay for russian gas will be gone and russia's economy which is already kind of sputtering will be hurt even further but don't forget one thing uh there is a huge market for russian gas to the east to china and russia and china are growing ever closer so what i see happening is a bigger chasm between the west and russia and russia getting even closer to
0: china hmm. whichever a lot of unknowns one thing seems to be certain that ukraine faces a long and lonely and cold winter
3: i would agree with
0: that. nothing to be happy about yeah johnson broder always great to talk to you you always bring a interesting viewpoint into the discussions uh i want our listeners to know that they can read jonathan broder's work over spy talk on substack that's substack.co Thanks, John. We'll be talking again soon. Good talking to you, John.
2: That was Jonathan Broder, Spy Talk contributing editor and longtime foreign policy reporter. A reminder: you can find Jonathan Broder's reporting on Ukraine, the Middle East, and more on Substack if you subscribe to Spy Talk. And of course, we'd love to have you subscribe to the Spy Talk podcast as well. And a quick ask, on our show page, you'll find a PodTrack survey. If you could complete that, it would be great. It's a way for us to learn more about who is listening. In just a minute, could partisanship in the military lead to chaos and even a coup? Three former generals recently penned an op-ed in the Washington Post headlined, The Military Must Prepare for a 2024 Insurrection. It warns that there's the potential for a total breakdown of the chain of command along partisan lines, citing three events. The number of active duty and former military involved in the events of January 6th. A letter released by 124 retired military officials questioning the legitimacy of the 2020 presidential election and the refusal by the commander of the Oklahoma National Guard to obey an order from President Biden that all troops be vaccinated against COVID. I spoke with one of the three authors of the op-ed, retired U.S. Army Major General, Paul D. Eaton.
1: There is an infection perpetrated by the Republican Party in greater America This uh, stop the steal, this uh, case that uh, the election was fraudulent. uh, When you say that often enough, there is the real possibility of infecting the armed forces of the United States with this cult of Trump. And uh, I don't think that uh, uh, we need to settle down on percentages of extremist membership, rather, Cult
2: of Trump membership. What are your political opinions?
1: I am steadfast as a uh, as an independent. I was a very reliable Republican voter up until halfway through President George W. Bush's uh, second term, and uh, for for reasons related to foreign policy decisions. Uh, I uh, became uh, a little bit left of center in my support of various candidates.
2: Is it appropriate for you to speak out? Traditionally, the military has been viewed as apolitical.
1: Indeed. Uh, I don't consider myself to be political, I consider myself uh, required. To never walk past a mistake. Uh, back in 2006, you may remember the so-called revolt of the generals, or, as some would put it, the revolting generals. And uh, a handful of us uh, were very critical of Mr. Rumsfeld. It, I, I wrote an op-ed that showed up in uh, in the New York Times on the third anniversary of the attack into Iraq. So. That was viewed as a political event. And in fact, I became the darling of the, uh, of the left. Uh, but it was not a political event. It was a, an assessment for the performance of the serving secretary of defense that uh, nobody seemed willing to do.
2: Is this what you've written now? Is this a political event?
1: It is not. It uh, can be certainly construed to be a political event because the problem is the Republican Party. Uh, the problem, I, there, there are so few uh, reasonable Republicans left who have not fallen into the trap of Trump that uh, we, that is a danger to the American democracy.
2: But do you think that this um, kind of political statement, um, not just from yourself, but also from those others who signed a, a letter in, in support of the big lie, do you think that contributes to the recent survey results from the Reagan Institute, which showed that in the last three years, trust in the military has dropped from 70% to
1: 45%? Well, there are, you know, there's, Factors bearing on the problem, uh, and, and there are quite a lot of them. But the uh, and we can look at how we prosecuted the uh, the last wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and the outcomes therein. Uh, is that a contributing factor? I don't know. But uh, I am uncomfortable with uh, with the current state of affairs where. Retired military are are uh, taking a political stance.
2: But, again, you're to, but you're no, doing it. But you're doing it.
1: No, uh, the the I I did it, past tense, uh, in support of uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, and I was also in support of, uh, of President Obama. So that that is fact, and I, I will I, I will accept that. But the op-ed that, uh, that we wrote was not uh, a political event. That was not a, uh, in support of Democrats as opposed to uh, against uh, Republicans. That is an, a, an acknowledgment that we have a problem and how serious the problem is can be debated. But again, I go back to it is not unreasonable to, uh, to consider the possibility that a substantial number of active duty military may be confused by the Stop the Steal movement and uh, question who uh, is the actual president of the United States. We've got that confusion right now in millions of Americans. The fact so in, that, that the in
2: 2024 that that, if there is a trumpian candidate or Trump himself runs again, how are you afraid that things could unfold?
1: The attempt to create alternate slates in this last election is going to play out in the future. It's, that's not a one-time deal. And enough Republicans are acting on that in placement of people who will not uh, stand up to the, uh, to the shenanigans of uh, manipulating votes and manipulating uh, electoral slates for the Electoral College. If enough doubt is applied to our electoral process, our democracy is at risk. That doubt that is in a great number of Americans today can infect, can slide into our active force. And if you have a reasonable young man or woman who now believes that we have doubt in who the real elected president of the United States is, who has doubt that we have made an accurate call, who believes there may be fraud in the electoral outcome, that doubt will be a significant problem for the country, for our federal police forces, for all of our state and local police forces, and by extrapolation, the U.S. military.
2: So when it comes to the military and addressing this wargaming is something you suggest that could be done, what else should be done to try and cope with this problem now, before the next election?
1: We need to work on the moral component. We no longer need to accept as an article of faith that our 18-year-old is coming out of high school or the 20-year-old coming out of some level of college education or the 22-year-old coming out of university, that they have an absolute faith in the American political system, the American electoral system, and the Constitution of the United States. That has been challenged by the likes of Fox News, by the likes of other uh, right-wing conservative uh, news outlets and by the Republican Party and their leaders in the House and to a degree their leaders in the Senate. So how who, do you address it? That's the that's the challenge. Uh, we're going to have to uh, work very hard on making sure that each and every one of our young men and women uh, have a, uh, a civics foundation And where we expected our election, our uh, education system to provide that, uh, I no longer believe that that's true. But if you provide
2: it to them when they enlist at 18, 20, 22, is it too late? Have their political views already been shaped? That
1: is uh, a great question. And I don't believe that an 18 year old. 20 year old or 22 year old is intellectually set for life I am an excellent example my my me personally uh, I was extremely conservative uh, when I came into our armed forces at the age of 22 I have evolved it took a while but I have evolved to uh, to be uh, pretty much uh, centrist And I expect that an 18 year old is still, uh, we have an opportunity to help shape his uh, or her outlook.
2: So, you also mentioned in your op ed uh, that the military should be um, utilizing its intelligence capabilities to figure out what's happening within the force. That sounds like a potentially slippery slope.
1: It is. When you sign your name and uh, take the oath uh, to uh, come into the military, you do give up certain rights. Uh, I was at a venue on a federal installation where uh, somebody was flying a, uh, a flag, let's go Brandon. That's a violation of the Hatch Act. But the defense of the person was freedom of speech. Well, you don't have freedom of speech in the US military. And that's just uh, part of a 1939 law called the Hatch Act.
2: The Department of Defense has now come up with some suggestions on how it may address extremism in the military, and social media is part of that. and they say they're going to look more carefully at recruits as they come in. Do you think they can ever get the visibility they need to figure out um, whether somebody is an extremist or not, given how many layers there are to the Internet? Somebody might not put something on their Facebook page, but they could be participating in some subterranean chat room.
1: Yes. Again, we're always behind technology and the application of our laws and the development of our laws. and. Uh, what what you bring up is very complex. We're at the beginning of try to understand the nature of uh, of the problem.
2: Here's another question for you. At that point, somebody is not signed on the di- dotted line. They have not enlisted. They are being looked at as a potential recruit. They still have free speech rights at that point, don't they?
1: They do. And uh, if you uh, you know, they're part of the uh, employment. Drill that folks go through right now if they're uh, looking to get a job, uh, you put down what you are doing on what outlet. So if you're on Twitter or if you're on Facebook, uh, your prospective employer has a right to go in there and find out if you're the kind of guy he wants.
2: Even if the prospective employer is the U.S. government, are there restrictions on what the military can do in terms of looking at someone's social media profiles?
1: I don't know. They're trying to figure that out. And, and good men and women are going to, uh, to, to sort all this out because they have to.
2: Overall, what did you think of the Pentagon's proposals on this?
1: It's a start.
2: But only a it's start?
1: A, it's a start. And, uh, you know, are you allowed to be on the rolls of the Proud Boys, yet you are not authorized to participate in their activities? mark Can you contribute to the Proud Boys if you are an active duty uh, soldier? Uh, all, all these are questions that, that they are uh, working. You know, again, good people are trying to figure out what the answers to those questions are because you do not wish to insert doubt into the loyalty to what entity for any soldier. This whole business of loyalty to the chain of command can be uh, placed in doubt, and it's not something that that we ever want to see.
2: Talking for a bit more about the, the speech aspect of this, my presumption is what you're really concerned about isn't the speech, it's the action and what people might do. In the case of Nadal Hassan, this was someone who said things that were of concern. He was raising red flags, but nobody expected he was going to pull out a gun at Fort Hood and kill 13 people. How do you ever know where the line is where someone's going to cross over from just expressing support for certain ideas and acting on them?
1: Son is an example of a failure on the part of the chain of command. Every staff sergeant squad leader of an infantry nine-man squad is intimately aware of his men. He knows them very well. And uh, if they have problems or if they have a failure to understand, the squad leader will know. Uh, This major had a a very vivid trail that uh, should have caused his chain of command to say, we have a problem here. And that was, to me, my understanding, is, uh, that was a breakdown of the chain of command.
2: So it failed there, but it could fail in the case of somebody who held extremist views as well, couldn't it?
1: Indeed. And that's the pres- one of the prescriptions in this op-ed is uh, a, a, you know, get to know your troops and uh, make sure that you understand. But what if you agree with your troops? Well, If you agree with your troops, then there is somebody above you who should know better.
2: But Don't Ask Don't Tell was problematic, in part because people in command didn't embrace it. And the U.S. military still has not been able to root out sexual assault and sexual harassment. So why should we think they'll be able to get to the bottom of extremism in the ranks? Well...
1: You no, know, I I hate to give this answer, but uh, feel free to work harder. And uh, it is uh, this business of sexual assault in the military. Uh, again, we draw from the society at large, and sexual assault is a uh, is an American problem. It's a it's a human problem,
2: as is extremism.
1: Indeed, and uh, we're flagging to the executive branch that we need to address this business a bit more rigorously.
2: Another problem is people who are retiring from the military, who are being actively recruited by some of the extremist groups. What can be done, what should be done with them? Well, when you
1: retire from the, uh, from the military and you're drawing a pension, you are still subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice you are eligible to be with, uh, to be uh, brought back. And uh, if you are in violation of the, uh, of the UCMJ, well, you're, that's a problem for you. It's the, it's the non-retired veterans who are free agents. Uh, They can, uh, they can, it can be radicalized.
2: So and what should, we saw what should the military be trying to do about that, if anything?
1: I am having right now a failure of imagination on how to answer your question. It's a, it's a very hard question to, uh, to answer. What can Americans do to modify behaviors of veterans of the armed forces who have a lot of skills that we saw deployed at the uh, 6th January insurrection. So it it is a dilemma. And uh, I, I don't have a good answer for that.
2: Let's go back to the big picture. How dire is this situation in your view?
1: There's a saying, you might be a bigot, but you will not behave as a bigot when you're in the U.S. military. We modify behaviors. Modification of thought is always a challenge.
2: That was Paul D. Eaton, retired U.S. Army Major General, who spent more than 30 years in the military. He is now a senior advisor to vote vets. I asked him, by the way, if he'd gotten a lot of negative reaction to the op-ed. He said no. And that's it for this edition of Spy Talk. I'm Gene Maserve. Jeff Stein will be back with me next week. A reminder to subscribe to the Spy Talk podcast and Substack and follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jean Beserve. Jeff is at Spy Talker. Have a great week. Talk to you next year.
1: For more original reporting
2: and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.